This is Richard Pothick with Chapter 15, A Turning Point, from the Autobiography on the Sidewalks of New York. In the spring of 1947, I declared history as my major. I did not agonize over that decision. From the time I had arrived at Worcester, I felt comfortable in my history classes. If I had any innate abilities, it was in the field of history. It was here I felt accomplishment. History gave me a feeling of exhilaration. There was a wholeness to history, like standing on a mountain and seeing a whole panorama in front of you. The events of history are part of a continuing story. They fed into one another and were part of larger themes and movements. I was fascinated with the struggles for religious freedom in the 16th century and the building of nation states in the 18th and 19th centuries. Most of all, I was fired up with the rise of the working class in their response to the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century. I considered this part of my own history, part of the history of my forebears. That history meant more to me now that I had contact with the labor movement. Becoming an active part of the League for Industrial Democracy, with its history of struggle for the rights of working people, added to that sense of who I was and what I believed. The League had a history dating back to the early 20th century when the social activists and intellectuals responded to the struggles of working people to democratize the industrial sector. Writers like Jack London, educators, civic leaders, and labor activists were part of its history. This, I thought, is what education should be about. It was not in the personal academic pursuits in competing for grades or in establishing oneself as a professional, it was to be equipped to take part in the movement for a change in the world. That change for me was related to justice for working people around the world and for opening up society to those who had been shut out. Education meant to learn what you needed to know to bring justice and greater equity in the world. This, I came to believe, was my calling. It was the center of my religious commitment. I was the son of working class parents from a long line of working people. My religious call was to engage in work which would open up others to the gospel's concern for the working poor. In the fall of 1947, my energies were concentrated on building a strong program for the Student League for Industrial Democracy. I had been elected as president of the Big Four, the four major religious programs on campus. My attention was directed to helping these programs deal with the justice concerns of the Christian faith. In all these activities, my focus was on the coming national presidential election in 1948. The 1948 elections was the first post-World War II presidential elections. For 16 years since the 1932 elections, U.S. politics had been dominated by the economic depression and the preparation for war. The time had come for building a new future. Nationally, we needed to pay attention to the rapid expansion of our industries and to the assurance that industrial democracy and the strengthening of the labor movement would be on the agenda. We had just opened the door for minorities, 
The Roosevelt years had made gains for both groups of people, labor and minority rights. There were now efforts after 16 years of democratic control in Congress to move back from the gains we had made in those years. The Taft-Hartley bill in Congress was an effort to weaken the labor movement. Senator Robert Taft was a favorite son of Ohio and a likely candidate in the Republican convention. The Democrats were calling for a full employment peace economy. Coming out of the war, there were strong sympathies for the United Nations, fostered by internationalists, among whom Eleanor Roosevelt had a prominent figure. In the Republican Party, there was still a vocal isolationist wing, still warning about entangling alliances. These were the issues astir on college campuses during the academic years of 1947 and 1948. At Worcester, the Student League did its best to stir the political pot on these issues. We drew a large number of students to our meetings and added members throughout the year. The League for Industrial Democracy was concerned about rebuilding the Student League across the country, particularly in the East and Midwest. By spring, we learned that we had the largest SLID chapter nationally. In the 30s and 40s, the Student League's greatest strengths had been in the New York and the Detroit areas. Detroit had been a natural base for SLID with its automotive industry and growing auto workers' unions. Leading up to World War II and during the war, the Student League, under its national president, Joe Lash, had joined together with other student groups in a United Front student organization. The United Front, whose main thrust was the defeat of fascism, brought together students of many different political stripes. Liberal Democratic student organizations, socialist groups, and communist groups all combined their efforts to stop Nazism and fascism in Europe. The United Front soon came under the influence of a pro-Stalinist faction. League for Industrial Democracy, ever wary of communist tactics of manipulation and domination, withdrew its support from its student organization. The SLID collapsed. With the end of the war, the parent LID exerted new efforts to re-establish the student league. The activities of SLID on Worcester campus attracted the attention of the more liberal-minded people. Dr. Carl Versteeg, the head of the geology department at Worcester, was the conservative watchdog on campus. Dr. Versteeg was a well-known geologist, but also one of the arch-conservatives on the faculty. He despised Franklin Roosevelt and the liberal politics of the Democratic Party. Stories abounded on campus of his deep antagonism to Roosevelt. One of the favorite stories passed on by one of the members of the geology department was Versteeg's heated partisanship in the 1940 elections. Versteeg was an isolationist and foresaw Roosevelt's Lend-Lease policies leading the nation into war. In this, he was in continual controversy with Eileen Dunham, the head of the history department who was in open support of U.S. participation in the Lend-Lease program. During one of his geology lectures, in the process of illustrating a point, 
Gustig pulled down an overhead map of geologic formations in the Ohio area. Instead, the class was confronted with a huge political poster of Franklin Roosevelt for president. It was reported that the class had to be suspended because the professor had become apoplectic. I had taken classes with Dr. Vasig in 1946 and 47 academic year. I enjoyed geology and did very well in the class. Among the physical sciences, geology was the one closest to my feeling for time and for eras. At the end of the course in the spring, Dr. Fastig caught hold of me to ask whether I would consider majoring in geology. He said I was a good student and that he was sure I would do well in graduate school. I assured him at the time that while I was appreciated, really, really appreciated geology, I was committed to becoming a minister. In the early fall, Verstig stopped me on campus again. I suspected he would be pursuing the same line of approach. He had a reputation of collaring students he wanted to be geology majors. Verstig stood in front of me, solid and immovable. He had a bull-like build, a square head and a set jaw. Posing, he shot at me, you would make a good geologist. You got all the feeling. Forget this business about the ministry. If you sign up for geology, I'll make sure that you get into grad school. You have the stuff to get a good job in geology. I thanked him again for his interest in my future, but I told him I had made up my mind about the ministry. Later in the fall, Dr. Vestig caught me as I was coming out of the college library. He cornered me on the steps. This time he was clearly agitated. Pothing, I like you and I don't want to see you get into trouble. What trouble, Dr. Vestig, I asked. You're one of those leaders in the SLID organization. I wrote to Washington about this group, to the Un-American Activities Committee in Congress. I got back a report that it's a communist organization. Did you know that? Yes, Dr. Vestig, I know it's past history. I also checked up on it. That was past history. It was not a communist organization, I explained. During the war, it joined up with other student groups. Everybody came together to fight Hitler during the war. You know that. The parent organization, the League for Industrial Democracy, withdrew its support from the Student League. When it became entangled in the United Front, the Student League collapsed. This is a completely new organization. This little history lesson did not convince Dr. Steve. Anything with a name like the Student League for Industrial Democracy had to be subversive. He made one last effort to shake me loose from this organization before I ruined my life. He still held out the offer for me to join the geology department and forget this political tomfoolery. Dr. Vestig, notwithstanding, I continued on down the road to political perdition. A great opportunity presented itself for the SLID in the mock political convention which was to be held on campus in May 1948. This was the sixth mock political convention to be held at Worcester. It was to be a forerunner of the National Republican Convention in the summer. The SLID leadership saw an opportunity to get its issues before the student body through the ages of the political convention. We recognized that the political convention format could easily become a popularity contest between Republican presidential aspirants. We knew that campus political groups, for example, the Young Republicans, the Congressional Club, 
the corporation, the International Relations Club, and some of the campus fraternities and sororities would back popular Republican candidates. We needed a Republican who represented the most liberal wing of the party. One Republican senator, Wayne Morse of Oregon, usually could be counted on to vote with the Democrats. Wayne Morse was our man. We decided to raise the major issues of the presidential election from the perspective of Wayne Morse. A choice of Morris as a candidate at the mock convention was greeted with disbelief and derision by some antagonists. We were told that in the real Republican convention, his name would never make it to the floor. That only encouraged us. We politicked for Morris among the student body, all of whom would be delegates to the convention. We argued for Morris, not on the grounds that he could win the Republican nomination, but that he stood for what the country needed. The convention was preceded by a parade with floats and flags. The gymnasium where the convention was held was alive with last-minute negotiations for votes among the state delegations. The banners and bunting and the posters with political candidates, the candidates' pictures, made it a Class A political act. Some antagonists, whose ire was raised by the Morse nomination, turned out the gymnasium lights during the nominating speech for Wayne Morse. When the lights came back on, a huge banner hung from the gym running track with the message, No More Stuff! When the first balloting by states ended, Senator Arthur Vandenberg of Michigan had 354 ballots and Wayne Morse had 220 ballots. Morse had run ahead of other Republican favorites, Governor Harold Stassen of Minnesota, Governor Thomas Dewey of New York, and Governor Robert Taft of Ohio. In the regular Republican convention in the summer, Governor Thomas Dewey was the nominee. We had done well with Wayne Morse, better than we had expected. The final vote for, of the convention on behalf of Senator Arthur Randenburg was good. Our SLID members believed that the running of Wayne Morse raised the level of the political conversations at the convention. Vandenberg, who had been an isolationist in the 1930s, had become a leading internationalist in the Republican Party in the post-war era. Robert Taft, a conservative and a favorite son of Ohio, did poorly among a student body which was made up largely of Ohioans. We had done our job in the liberalization of the issues. A side story to this episode was a trip some of us took to Washington, D.C. in the early spring, just before the mock political convention. The Congress had before it legislation which would have prolonged the peacetime draft of young men for military service. This was a good issue for building a coalition on campus, a point at which the concerns of SLID and the Big Four coincided. Both the religious groups and the political liberals were against the peacetime draft. We got together a carload of students to make the trip to Washington, D.C. in conjunction with a larger student lobby against the draft issue. The vote of my local New York congressman at the time was no problem. Vito Antonio of New York's 16th Congressional District was the lone independent in Congress, representing the American Labor Party, 
This was the same party that had supported Fiorello LaGuardia in his election as mayor of New York City. It was said by the red-baiting press that Mark Antonio was the only communist ever elected to Congress. Nobody could prove that allegation, but his style of staying close to the issues of the poor in his district gave him a leftist reputation. He was a working congressman and spent considerable time in the 16th district listening to the people's problems. Many of his constituency lived in the public housing built during the LaGuardia administration. Mark Antonio could be counted on to vote liberal on every issue. Mark Antonio came off the floor of Congress to talk to me about the draft issue. He assured me that he would vote against it. At the same time, he gave me an insider's perspective on how the vote would split. My reason for the trip to Washington was to meet with Senator Wayne Morse. The SLID had delegated me to get some word from him about his aspirations and what he thought the issues were for the 1948 election campaign. We had sent the senator a letter telling him of our plan to run him in our mock Republican convention. When we arrived at the Senator Morse's office, we were welcomed and ushered into his office. Morse greeted us cordially. He told us he was honored that we considered him presidential material. He, however, was a realist about his chances in the Republican convention. Instead, he talked to us about the issues he saw on the horizon. We parted with his word of appreciation to the student group at Worcester, which was supporting him in our convention. Before classes ended in June, word had come of a student study program which would visit Saskatchewan Providence in Canada during the summer. The word had gone out to the student liberal groups across the country that this journey was to be a study of a socialist government in action. The Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, the CCF, was the first successful political party with a socialist agenda to win an election in a major state government in North America. The idea intrigued me. As leader of the Student League for Industrial Democracy, I felt an obligation to make the trip. It would mean a loss of summer earnings for next year's tuition, but I only needed one more semester, and I would make up the money in the fall. Before I left Worcester, I had decided to go to Saskatchewan. I would put off graduating until the second semester and graduate with the class of 1949. I already had a promise from Dr. Harry Laidler, Executive Secretary of the League for Industrial Democracy. The League would take me on as their student secretary in the fall. I looked forward to my summer with great anticipation.